I'm Rose Fernandez. I'm the Chief Executive Officer for Algenist. And what I love about beauty today, because it differs all the time, is the creative space and all the people that I get to meet along the way. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Welcome to Beauty Is Your Business. I'm Denise Dente, the co-host for today, and I am here with my business partner from Buzz Beauty and co-host, Jessica Quick. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Denise. I am really excited about today's guest. We would like to welcome Rose Fernandez from Algenus. Welcome, Rose. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to be able to you know, have this conversation with both you, Denise, and Jessica. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. We're super excited to have you and hear more about what you're doing. But before we get into some of your thoughts around distribution and some of your very modern management style, we would love to hear about your journey into beauty. What I think is amazing is the fact that you really started from the ground up in this industry and now you're the CEO of quite a successful company. So maybe you can take us through your journey into beauty. Yeah, it's my favorite story. So thank you for asking me about it. It's really quite incredible. And I think it speaks to all of the opportunity that beauty presents. And it's really always been a place for me. It's just kind of whatever you want to make it. And I think you can see that anywhere across the business. So I came into beauty really because I was interested in doing makeup and I started on the retail floor doing, you know, promotional makeup artistry for actually one of the Estee Lauder brands. And it just was so much fun. And I met so many incredible people through that experience. I actually came across someone who was working at Shiseido And they had recruited me to come to work for them. And I loved the brand. And it's so funny because if I think back, you know, I've talked to lots of people and there's always this conversation around kind of like what you do first is often the thing that you love the most and kind of threads throughout your life. And what I loved about Shiseido was the science and the product. And even though I was originally in love with doing makeup, I was just so impressed with like the education and the technology and was with them for quite some, you know, a few years and made my way from basically a counter manager to an account coordinator and was really happy with the diversity in the work. I really have always liked to have a lot of diversity around how I spend my time, which is perfect for my current role as CEO. And I also loved how many women there were in leadership. And I think that's when it really struck me that this could be a really great place for me, that I could really build a career here. Leaving Shiseido, I moved on to Murad at really early times. I think Murad was like one of the first clinical skincare brands. And I would say most people in the prestige world weren't really thinking about the pro side of the business or that side of the business or even clinical skincare. And again, was like in love with the science, was really excited to be a part of something new, which it was, in so many ways, because 
For me, I spent around 13 years at Murad and I did that with great passion, increasing responsibility, exposure to so many things. But one of the things that I love about that story, and there are so many things, is that I also opened some of the very first Sephora doors in the U.S. and North America. Sephora was looking for brands like we call today, I guess, indie brands like a Murad. So I've you know spent my whole career really with Sephora. And threaded through that has been this love for innovation and science and performance. And so I've had an opportunity to work on some other beautiful brands that have had great IP, great product, very differentiated, and have had roles from sales to marketing and have been able to spend a lot of time in product development and on the financial side. So I feel like it's also been um, on top of what you get as your formal education. Like this has been like better than any education I could have ever dreamt of. And I learn every day today. I think that's also the thing that I love so much about the business is that you're continuously learning. Like that's where I go back to what I was saying. Like you can make it anything you want really. So in 2016, I had read that 10 Gram Capital had acquired Algenist. And I just thought that was such an exciting opportunity because I remembered Algenist When I first came across Algenist, I was actually the VP of sales over at Kate Somerville. I remember walking through Sephora and being really kind of just struck, like awestruck, like who is this brand? Where did it come from? And I remember thinking that maybe it was even perhaps like a Sephora owned brand because they had such great positioning and it was super tight with its assortment. But really impressive were the claims. Again, you know, I kind of fell back into that place that I love and I I was so taken back with this ability to make these claims in 10 days. And they were talking about algae and it was this weird intersection. Like we really hadn't gotten to this space of, we were kind of in natural. There wasn't really clinical was kind of becoming less popular. Natural was trying to find its way between natural and organic. I had just come off of an organic brand, a biodynamic brand, like next level organic. And then I was like, had this brand in front of me. And I remembered that feeling about Algenis. So when I saw that Tengram had acquired the brand, I emailed Rich Gersten and was like, hey, congratulations, great brand. Like it has a lot of opportunity. And then we started talking and I met Frederick Stockel, the CEO at the time. And I mean, the rest is history. So I joined as the SVP of sales. I was, you know, the right hand to Frederick. We did a lot of amazing things together. Denise, you and I talked a little bit about the business side. And I think the thing that was super exciting for me was that this was something that I hadn't done before, like ever. And I was being brought on to be part of a carve out. And I don't think most people know what a carve out is. Are you familiar with the term? Yes, but we'd love to hear more about that piece. Yeah. So, you know, it was explained to me, you know, Rich was like, okay, so, you know, we bought this brand and we've carved it off of this biotech lab. And so you'll be part of the team that's going to, you know, set this up. And Frederick and I were really, I think, in lockstep about what needed to happen. And it all sounded very succinct. Like, you know, you need to set up your financials. You need to set up your manufacturing. You need to build out your reporting. You need to get a bank account. Like, I mean, it was literally like the most amazing experience, but I always describe it like being on a freight train that is moving. It will slow down from time to time, but it is not stopping. And so if you can think about 
maybe you have this business. It has this amazing distribution. It's in Sephora. It's in Sephora, China. It's operating at QVC. We're making product. R&D is happening. And while all of that's happening and all the things that you need to do to just run a business, you know, you've got product pipeline, like you're managing your financials, all of that. You're also setting stuff up. So it's like double duty at the same time. But it was, again, something I had never done before. And it was a part of the business that I had never been exposed to. I had never had to set up a business and certainly not one that was already operating. So I don't know if it's like the person in me that loves the challenge, but I would absolutely do it again. I think when I say that, most people are like, you're crazy. That's like insane work. And it was because it was I was like head down for six months straight. I remember I didn't do anything else. It was like hire the team, build out the infrastructure. We were looking at the product portfolio. You know, we had all these SKUs. I think we had like over 80 SKUs when I first joined the brand. And we're launching innovation, all the things I've shared with you on the financial side, running manufacturing. And so we were so focused, intensely focused for the first six months. It was also so invigorating. Like when I think back to that time, it's a moment that I like to hold because it brings me a smile. It brings me joy. When you started out, you've mentioned all the mechanics of doing setup. How did you start your distribution? Now that you've actually got product, where did you go first? So we were already distributing, which was interesting. Distribution had been largely defined. That didn't mean that we didn't need to make some choices along the way. I think one of the things, especially on a brand that has been acquired is there's some parts of the business that require attention, like either on the margin side or on the assortment side or on the distribution, sometimes all of the above. I think we were a lot all of the above. So for us, it was super clear that we were born at Sephora. We were born at Sephora and QVC. So those were our key partners. It was important for us to continue to build the business there. But, you know, we also had great distribution. We were in Ulta when I joined the business and a few other partners. But what became really clear to us was this need to get very, very focused with our distribution. Because when you're a brand of our size, honestly, like any size, resources are not infinite. So if you're not focused, it can be very dangerous. And so we decided, I think it was in 2019, that we were going to focus our distribution on Sephora and QVC and Algenis.com. And that's really what we did. And it was tough to do because I, again, you know, in my history, have worked with Ulta for a really long time. They're really great partner. And I think a wonderful place for us to be at a different time in our life stage. But in the life stage where we were, which was Drilling back to our DNA, there was all of that work that needed to be done, which we did. The brand became 100% vegan in 2019. I think it was April of 2019. You know, we got really, really clear on we were born from an ingredient discovery and that we needed to live there. And so since then, we've launched a couple of other game-changing ingredients. One is active vegan collagen. The other is a blue C or vitamin C from blue-green algae. And then we had to rationalize a portfolio. Like I said, you know, we had, I think, 80 SKUs. We're about 48 right now. There's probably 10 that I'd like to continue to rationalize. And we put up a lot of parameters too. Like we have a hard rule, one in, one out. There were processes that were put in place like stage gating to make sure that we started with 
all of the guide for how we were going to make the product instead of like, we have this amazing idea, we're going to make this product. Oh, the cost of goods is outrageous and we can't sell it for more than this. Distribution at the onset is a beautiful thing because if you can choose your distribution from the beginning and you can define that from the beginning, that's a really beautiful thing. Having to kind of re-engineer things can get complicated and, you know, there's tough decisions to be made there, which we've had to do. And I would say it's been for the better. It's like been very positive for us. And Sephora is a wonderful partner, as is QVC. And our Algens.com business has grown significantly as a result. So Rose, you talked about obviously culling down your distribution to a few key retailers and obviously then their success is even that much more important. So what are some of the things that you're doing to ensure success with those retailer partners? Yeah, Jessica, that's a great question. I think it's interesting for the audience for us to talk about this one because the two retailers are, couldn't be any more different. I mean, even though Sephora and Ulta are very different, there's still lots of similarities, right? We've got brick and mortar, we've got .com. QVC and Sephora could not be more different. Even today, as much as I think the business has kind of morphed, you know, and we've got like live streaming happening and things of that nature, so we run two very distinct strategies with QVC and between QVC and Sephora. So with QVC, really, we're looking to build key drivers. So we want to focus on SKUs that we know that we do really well, that are going to have a broad appeal that we can offer at a good value. So like cost of goods is an important consideration. You might want to offer something, but it may not make sense because the cost of goods may be so high that there's no way that you'll be able to get to a value that would make sense for the QVC customer. So I think that's always something that is a surprise to people. You know, they're like, oh, well, it's my hero skew is this. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably not the one. So what we focus on at QVC are high loyalty items. So most of our business, I would say more than 70% of our business is done across the business. So not specific to these retailers and serums, eye creams, and moisturizers, really only one eye cream. So at QVC, we focus on liquid collagen. Liquid collagen is a global bestseller for us. It's received 11 awards. Like I'm telling you this because when you're at QVC, you need to think through what kind of assets am I going to be able to go on air with? So it's claims, it's awards, it's reviews. 95% of your reviews, 95% of the people would recommend the product, the before and afters. And then also, yes, absolutely the pricing. So I think liquid collagen has been now with QVC for at least four years with great success. And we've been able to actually do that in multiple formats. So that product has been in a 30 ml, a 60 ml, a duo, and in smaller sizes, when we make, when we give other offers, we will offer a 6.2 ml. So always driving back to building that hero. And then we just recently wanted to build out the business at QVC. So we added another product, which is triple algae eye renewal bomb. So again, it's a great product because it's got a great margin. We're able to offer a great price. It's a broad appeal product. It has great assets. It's already award-winning. You know, the reviews are great. And so those are the two SKUs that we focus on at QVC. And the way that we refresh 
when we go on air there. And so that's about the sell through is we are always looking for awards, press mentions. If we want to refresh assets, BNAs, sometimes we'll do an additional study, clinical or BNA study, consumer study. Those are the things you want to focus on when you're looking at QVC. Product that you can offer a great value on, product that makes sense for you, for your brand, because of the levers that you're able to pull from a margin perspective. And that doesn't, I just want to also caveat that you could have a product that maybe just needs some engineering, like some reverse engineering so that you can make a really compelling value offer on QVC. Like, you know, maybe you remove the carton, maybe you don't need an insert, maybe it's a different component, maybe it's a different package. So those are things that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're first starting with QVC. And the one thing I would say is that it's not magic. Like you don't go to QVC, offer a product. They say, yes, it goes on air and magically you have, you know, done $4 million worth of sales in 24 hours. Like that's a very thoughtful process. All the things I've just said to you, but then you got to go back to the team and say, this is what we want to achieve. This needs to be the outcome. And then the team will do all of that kind of reverse engineering that I was talking about to figure out how do we make this work for everyone? Because at the end of the day, what I really, really care about is that the customer has a beautiful experience, that she's gotten a great product with great value in a great component, and that she feels like she's gotten something here. She feels like she's got something very special at QVC. And so that's kind of the lens that you need to think about when you're thinking about sell-through with QVC. So I would say pick your SKUs, focus on them, invest in those SKUs, make sure you're getting press, you're getting awards, like that, you're building assets, and then always look to that product and how can you reinvigorate that product so that it feels like the customer's getting something differentiated in you. So that's QVC. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Aesthetics Biomedical. They're a team of the best and brightest innovators in the global aesthetics market, and they've developed programs and products designed to achieve optimal results. Aesthetics Biomedical is a thought leader in the innovation of treatment serums, masks, and recovery systems to enhance the results of the treatments that they design. Check out their website at aestheticsbiomedical.com and you can learn more about the Vivachi experience. It's the newest generation of radiofrequency microneedling. It's FDA cleared for your safety. It's a minimally invasive treatment and it stimulates the natural production of collagen. And it's shown to be effective in alleviating facial wrinkles, fine lines, and tightening and toning the face and neck. So if you're looking for optimal results, check out Aesthetics Biomedical. Find out more at aestheticsbiomedical.com. So Rose, we love this idea that you're digging into the financial piece along with the product performance piece, obviously delivering something to the consumer of great value and is a great hero product for you. I know Jessica and I work with our customers quite a bit on this price ladder and price elasticity and what the consumer will pay versus our cost of goods. And that distribution matters because if you're just selling D to C and you've only structured your price that way, and then you go into retail, it can be detrimental to your growth and to your margin and to reinvesting back into the company. So 
from a finance standpoint and when you're looking at your products and going on to QVC versus other pieces, how do you look at that? Yeah. So you raise an interesting topic on distribution and product and pricing. And I think that this is something that I think a lot of brands assume, okay, I'm going to launch on my own site because I'm going to make the most money there. And that's not always the case. And it's fine if that's how you have to get started, but it's not necessarily going to be the place where you're going to make the most money because there's a lot of things to consider, right? Like what's your price point? You know, if you're selling a $13 item and it costs $7 to ship and I haven't even gotten into all the other costs to run the site, we're probably not making any money. This is a hobby. We need to find distribution, a retailer that can help you that's going to buy from you wholesale. And maybe your site is not a commercial site. Maybe it's a brand and information site. You rely on that relationship with the retailer to help you build awareness. They're buying from you wholesale. So now you're, you know, you're trading at a good margin. You're able to take that money. You're buying sampling. If you have that kind of product, you're providing that to the retailer so that you can get trial out there. None of these things can happen on your own site. We have figured out a way to do that on our own site. So I'm happy to talk with you about that. But I think I'm using the $13 item because I talk with a lot of brands. People will reach out to me and they're they're like, you know, I have my own site and I have this product and I want to launch it. And I'm like, that's awesome. We need to find a retailer because this isn't going to work for you long-term, but I get it. So I think that's just something to consider with distribution. Like what's your product? Where's your customer? How much are you selling it for? What are the costs associated for you to sell it on your own site? Is that the best place? Yes, we get that you want to have a site, but a retailer partner or a partnership may be be better for you or a marketplace. It depends on the product. Maybe a marketplace is better for you. Maybe you have something that people look for all day long on Amazon. And so that's where you should be. So I try to caution people to not get caught up in like everything needs to be launched at Sephora first, because I don't know that that's always the winning strategy. It really depends on the product and what are you striving to achieve? So I think those are things you need to consider. So Sephora is very different. And in some of the most amazing ways, because there you have brick and mortar stores and you have .com, but you also have this team of people that are very dedicated to helping you win, to helping you build the business. So you want to work very closely with Sephora. They are great at giving feedback and insights. They obviously work with hundreds, if not thousands of brands. They see thousands of things all of the time. So I think their feedback is really good. But I would also say that it's feedback, right? And so you also have a responsibility to understand your brand and your DNA and how to translate that so that you stay true to who you are while still serving what the retailer is asking you for. But the drivers at Sephora are very clear. They are differentiated product. Product with IP is important. So you want to be able to to say something very specifically and uniquely you and own that. And then I would say also they are SKU builders. So you're going to pick your handful of SKUs that you're going to focus on at Sephora. It's an open cell environment. So You've got to be brutally honest about what you do well and what the customer thinks you're going to do well. And you've got to focus on that 
all day long. So I love when a marketing manager comes to me and they're like, we want to sample everything. I'm like, that's brilliant. We're not doing that. We'll sample five products. Um, so <laughs> because you can't get depth. And I think once you explain that to someone that's coming along in the business that you're developing, like, you know, I get that you want to sample everything and I get that from a customer perspective, but from a retailer perspective and a consumer perspective, I need to have millions of samples and we need to be very clear about who we are and what we do well. When people, when we meet people along the way, we want them to say, oh, you're the brand that has that gold serum, which I hear all the time. It's not gold, it's yellow, whatever, but you think it's gold. And I'm so happy that you think it's gold because to you, it's a little piece of gold. So we're going to sample that all day long. You know, like, And, you know, we're going to make sure that our email placements are with that product. And the conversations that we're having with the retailer are similar to QVC and like, we're going to pick our heroes. We're going to focus on those. We're going to figure out how we can differentiate those, make them feel new, but we're going to stay very committed to them. So at Sephora for us, it's liquid collagen, it's triple algae, ironil balm, and it's also, you know, genius cream. Those are high loyalty items. They have high conversion with the sample, right? We're giving samples out. We want people to come back. We know that more than 60% of the people at Sephora, when they get a sample, they purchase. So you want to pick product that people are going to be able to feel quickly and love and see a difference and buy. And then the other piece I think is the innovation part. You want to be close with your retailer, with your, your Sephora in this case on what you're bringing to market. What is the consumer looking for? What do you need in the portfolio? I think in the past couple of years, there's been a big conversation also around pricing. I mean, our average price point pre, I would say 2019 was probably well over a hundred dollars. And now our average price point is probably closer to $92. And while that doesn't sound meaningful, like at first glance, that means that I'm launching products between 85 and $72 with my already heritage products that are like 115, 118, 112. And I think that's become important. And that's the kind of feedback you get from the retailer. And sometimes as a brand, you might sit back and be like, oh, well, you know, we live in this price point. You know, we live in this $115, $118. But at the end of the day, where you live is where your customer is. And if your customer is asking for product that is more palatable from a price point, then you need to step back and think about, okay, what do I need to deliver? And so back to that question on financial, that means that maybe our VP of product development, Tammy Eiser, is challenged to go back and think about how am I going to create this for this formula that is going to deliver what we promise and we're known for, which is 10 day results, but is going to sit in our product margin requirements and we're going to launch it at $85. That's a big disparity, right? $85 to 115 like that's no small ask. Like you ask her to do that and she looks at you googly-eyed, like, okay, I'll be back. And she's done it successfully. I am so impressed with this team. Like they get that financial piece. They're like, okay, let me let me go back and figure out what's really important. And so I think the thing you keep hearing from me is like, understand what's really important. So even in formula, like. Do we want to have the latest and greatest ingredient that everyone's talking about? I don't know. Does it matter? And this is a question I always ask. Is this how we're going to derive our claims? And if it's not how we're going to derive our claims, then we move on. Yeah, it sounds like you do a lot of this with intention, right? So one of the conversations that we frequently have is 
yes, your price point may be $125, but what's your average moving price? Because yes, you list it at $125, but you put it on sale so often, you constantly promote it, that it actually has an average moving price of $90 or something. And sometimes as marketers, we get a little bit stuck. And like, I like how you said, you know, this is the price house that we play in, but you don't because you've constantly put it on discount. And now actually you're kind of moving more towards a discount brand. So when you intentionally formulate with, we may have some more opportunity in a different price range, how do we formulate for that price range? And then how do we succeed with who we are as a brand, what the claims we're making, who we are authentically in that price range? You know, being very clear about the fact that we are in a different price range. We're not just discounting whatever that may look like. And that pricing conversation is a very big one and should be happening all the time. Yeah. I love what you just said. You said we're discounting, but the thing is it's worse than that. Actually, you're eroding your margins. You've lost control. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So instead of what you just described, also, which I love that you said, because I think it's true, like if with intention, okay, with intention, I'm going to start here. These are the things that we need to achieve. And this is the price. And I would say that we have gotten there. Everyone has a journey. Nothing's perfect. Like we have gotten there. And I would say from like 2019 forward, late 2018 to 2019, like forward, that's where we play. Like that's the conversation that you're hearing from me. That's very intentional because otherwise you're right. Like your average moving price, you might be selling at 115, but your average moving price is 89 and the product wasn't set up to deliver the margin that it needs to at $89. So what percentage of your business is happening in that price point? So just make product at $89. So it's good. I I love that. But it does take that constant concentration on the financial side of the business and the pricing and who you're doing business with, as you've been speaking to. So I think there's been some really great pieces of information, especially if you're a brand that maybe started D2C and wants to think about distribution or retail. Pricing is such a big part of this and taking away what you can um, to set yourself up for success in those channels to then be profitable and grow. Yeah. And I would say that any small brand that is starting up, you know, it's going to be looking for investment. Those are, that's critical, right? Like any investor is looking at, do you have IP or at least at bare minimum differentiated product? Are your product margins high? And do you have the potential to make money? Maybe you're not making money right now, but do you have the potential to make money? You know, and if you don't have the first two, the third one's kind of hard, no matter where you are. Rose, you have imparted such good information and such a brief amount of time. So thank you so much for all of that. We'll wrap this up with one last question, which is if people do want to reach out to you and get a hold of you, what is the best way to reach you? I think the best way to reach me, and I would say I do respond to, I would like to think 100%, but that's a crazy number. So we'll say high nineties of all of the messages that come into my LinkedIn. So I would say that LinkedIn is the best place to reach me. And then we, you know, dependent on the conversation, we can figure out where to connect from there. Well, I have to tell you, that's where I originally saw some of the things that you were posting. And I was so impressed with the things that you were saying about your management style and how you're leading your team through this 
challenging time of COVID, along with just the change in distribution and so forth, that you responded to me very quickly. And I am grateful for that. And I think that we've built a nice start of a relationship. And this has been such a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for joining Jessica and I today on Beauty is Your Business. Thank you very much, Denise and Jessica. It's been great to talk with you. I feel like I could talk with you for hours, which is always so special. So I look forward to just staying connected. Thank you for tuning in to today's show with our guest, Rose. If there were some interesting topics you'd love to chat more about, distribution strategy, pricing, or margins, come find us on LinkedIn at BuzzBeauty or head on over to our website, buzzbeauty.com or Instagram account, buzzbeautyhive. Hit us up in the DMs and we'd love to chat with you more about any additional information we can provide. Thank you. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.